2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse number 1. We'll begin reading. I just want to stop off quickly this week and share something with you. The Bible says in verse number 1, For as touching the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. Now, that's a King James word there, but the word superfluous kind of means useless. It was useless for me to write this letter unto you, is kind of what he's saying. It was, it was pointless, really, because, or second verse, For I know the forwardness of your mind, for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia. In other words, he's saying, I know your heart on the matter, so it was really pointless that I should be required to write unto you. I'm just doing it as a precautionary measure. He says in verse number 2, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal hath provoked very many. Yet have I sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this behalf, that, as I said, ye may be ready. Lest haply, if they of Macedonia come with me and find you unprepared, we that, we say not ye, should be ashamed in this same confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren that they would go before unto you and make up beforehand your bounty, whereof ye had noticed before that the same might be ready as a matter of bounty and not as of covetousness. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly, and he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man... According as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly, nor of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. I want to draw your attention to verse number 7, and I would like, if you will... For you to read the verse with me aloud, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse number 7. We'll read it aloud. Ready, go. Every man, according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. I want to draw your attention particularly to the final phrase of that verse, for God loveth a cheerful giver giver. This morning I want to be clear about something. God loves a cheerful giver. And you might be thinking in the back of your mind, well, doesn't God love me anyway, whether or not I'm a cheerful giver or not? Maybe I'm not a cheerful giver. Maybe I give uncheerfully, but doesn't God love me? And the answer is absolutely he does. You see, the Bible teaches us that God is love, but more Interesting to me is that God loves me and God loves you. The Bible says God loves sinners in spite of their sin. John chapter 316, probably the most famous verse in all of scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You see, God loves the world. God loves even the worst of this world. First John chapter 4 verse 10 says, herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. You see, it would make a lot of sense for us to love God because He is very lovely. But He loves us at our very worst. God does, in fact, love you. 
And He loves you in spite of your sin. In fact, God loves you so much that He sent Christ to remove your sin from you. The Bible says that Christ became sin for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And this was the love of God manifested unto us because that He sent His only begotten Son into the world. Christ came and died on the cross to prove how much He loves you. In fact, He did that so that you could have your sin removed from you. You see, the Bible teaches that the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you are not saved this morning, if you have never trusted Christ as your personal Savior, you are at this very moment on your way to spend an eternity apart from God in a place called hell. And I'm not teaching that based upon my experience. I am teaching that upon what God's Word says. The Bible says the wages or the payment for your sin is death. Separation from God forever. But Christ came to restore that fellowship. And it is on the cross that He died to reunite man with God. You see, you cannot get to heaven by being a good person. You cannot get to heaven by going through the baptismal waters. You cannot get to heaven by giving to charity or doing some good deed. You cannot come to get to heaven by coming to church enough. None of these things shall justify you in the eyes of Almighty God, for all flesh is wicked before Him. God sent His Son to be the substitutionary payment for your sin. And Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I just spent uh, the last week in a country that is dominated by Buddhism. And there are shrines and spirit houses literally on every street corner, at every gas station, at every place of business. And people will take offerings to those houses. And I am here to tell you today that those people, although they are very convinced about the legitimacy of their religion, they are lost because the Bible proclaims there is only one way to heaven. And that is through the Lord Jesus Christ. So before we get into God loves a cheerful giver, I want to say right up front, God loves you so much. But the word love in this passage is not speaking of his affection towards you. God loves you. And that fact will remain unchanged. You say, but preacher, I've done a lot of bad things. Hey, so did the thief on the cross. And by the way, all of us come to God with plenty of skeletons in our past. And when we ask for forgiveness, the Bible says God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You have never done anything so bad that God does not love you more than what you've done. He forgives you. All you must do is come to Christ and say, Dear Jesus, save my soul. That's the way to heaven. But as I said, this love is not how God feels about you, because God loves you. The word in this passage speaks of whether or not we are pleasing to God. See, God can love you and you displease Him. If you've ever had a child, you know what I'm talking about. 
You love the child, but there are times where you understand shaking baby syndrome. You love the child, but there are times when at a restaurant you wonder why your children are the only ones misbehaving. You love the child, and the way the child behaves doesn't change that fact. But there are times when that child does not please you. Did you know that you can please God this morning? And the Bible says the way that we can do that is by being a cheerful giver. It's interesting that if you were to go on Google right this very moment, please don't do that. But if you were, you could go to the search bar and type in what is the meaning of, or really you can stop at what is the meaning, and the first two suggestions that come up for that is of love and of life. What is the meaning of love and what is the meaning of life? You see, that is a very frequently asked question. Both of them are. And I kind of think the answer is one and the same. What is the meaning of love? God loves you. And there is no love in this earth that is more impressive, more wonderful, more, more amazing than the fact that God loves you. But once you find the love of God, the second question is already answered. The meaning of life is that we would bring pleasure to God, that we would please Him. The book of the Revelation tells us that everything that is created by God, which everything is, everything that is created by God was created for His good pleasure. So let me ask you this morning, are you pleasing God with the way that you live? Are you pleasing God with the way that you give? What brings you pleasure? I tell my wife frequently the thing or one of the things that brings me the most pleasure in life will happen today. Today on Sunday. You say, Brother Andrew, are you spiritual enough that your most pleasurable moments are when you're in the pulpit or you're at church? I wish I were that spiritual. I'll tell you my most pleasurable moment of this week will be when I get to go home tonight after service and I'm able to strip off my work clothes and get into my sleep clothes, my baggy basketball shorts and my t-shirt. And I will get in my chair and I will crank my recliner back and my wife, which is a wonderful servant, will bring me the ice cold sweet tea that she has so carefully and lovingly brewed. And I will sit in that chair cranked back after the kids have gone to bed, and I will watch probably Sports Center. And I will enjoy that moment because it is the first moment of my week where I do not have to think about what I'm preaching next. It's the first moment of the week that I do not have to think about who do I need to go visit right now. It is my peace time. What times do you enjoy? What brings you pleasure? For some, pleasure is found 20 feet high in a deer stand. For others, it might be in a shopping mall and a dressing room. Maybe pleasure is found on a ski slope or on a beach somewhere. But what brings you pleasure? The answer changes for us all, but God says what brings him pleasure, what brings him joy is a cheerful giver. And if that brings pleasure to God, I want to be one of those. I want to be a cheerful giver. So this morning I want to uh, preach to you a message entitled this, 
instructions on how to be a cheerful giver. Number one, if we're going to be a cheerful giver, we must give a perfect amount. We've got to give the right amount. And you say, well, what's that? Well, I can't answer that for you. Verse number seven tells us what the perfect amount was for this church. The Bible says, every man according as he purposeth in his heart. 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 are in the context of an offering that was to be taken up by the Apostle Paul and delivered to the saints in Judea. They were suffering, they were struggling, and so in their poverty, Paul was taking an offering to take to them. And the churches of Corinth and Berea and Thessalonica, those in Macedonia, were to participate in this offering. Now, this has been going on a year. For Corinth promised a year ago that they would be involved in the offering. But as Paul left, went to Macedonia, collected the offering from those churches in Macedonia, he's writing this letter to Corinth and he says, Hey, you promised a year ago you'd participate. Are you gonna? You said you would be part of the offering and I used you as an example to encourage the churches of Macedonia. Are you going to participate like you said you would. Verse number one of chapter number eight says, Moreover, brethren, we do you to wit of the grace of God bestowed on the churches of Macedonia, how that in a great trial of affliction, of the abundance of their joy and in their deep poverty abounded unto the riches of their liberality. In other words, the churches of Macedonia were also going through struggle and they were going through a time of poverty. But Paul says they gave above and beyond what we could have even asked of them. Now he writes to Corinth and he says, Hey, every man needs to give what he has purposed in his heart. We might say it like this. Well, God laid this on my heart to give. And Paul's just encouraging the church to give what God has laid on their heart. This will be my 30th Prove Your Love offering at our church. We take one up every year at this time. We receive one every year at this time. I keep saying we take it. I don't think we do. Uh, We receive it. And uh, as we approach the 30th of my life, I can tell you one of the hardest questions I've ever had to answer is, what do I give now? Because it got more difficult when I, I got married. Because now I have to deal with a second opinion. Before it was just my own. And now I sit down and I rationalize and I pray and I ask God's leadership. And then God gives me a number and I say, babe, this is what I was thinking. And her number is always higher than my number. Praise the Lord. (laughs) But I can tell you one of the hardest questions I ever face when it comes to this time of year is, what do I give? And there's really two questions that kind of decide that answer. Number one, it is this. How much do I love Christ? Now, you might be thinking in your mind, dirty play, Brother Andrew. (laughs) Dirty play. But isn't that what Paul told the churches at Macedonia? And now he's encouraging the church at Corinth. In chapter 8, he says that you would prove the sincerity of your love. How much you love Christ will directly affect how much you're willing to give him. The Bible says it like this, For where your heart is, there will your treasure be also. So if we we struggle to write uh, an amount down because, uh, well, that seems a little high, what, what that's telling you is it ought to be flashing in red lights. Christ is not the center focus of your heart. 
If you love Christ the way that you ought to, you would be willing to say, God, I'll give whatever number you give me. Lord, I want to be a blessing. Lord, I want to serve you and I want to worship you. So whatever you would ask, I would be willing to give. How much do you love Jesus? Now, it's not always easy to ask. Every man has power to give, but not every man has equal power to give. You'll recall the story of the widow where Jesus sits over. And the Bible says Jesus is standing in the temple beholding how people brought their offering. Now, if Jesus did it in the New Testament, I assure you Jesus will be doing it next week. Jesus is interested in what you give and how you give. And the Bible says that there's these rich people coming and they're giving of their excess. But he doesn't say anything about them until this one little widow lady comes and offers her two mites, which is all of her substance. And Jesus points his disciples in that direction and says, Look, guys, you see that lady? She hath given out of her need. She has given everything to me. And he encourages them to have faith like her. He says, Oh, the rich man, they gave out of their abundance, but she hath given out of her need. You see, that lady loved Jesus, and Jesus pointed it out. The first question you ought to ask is, how much do I love Jesus? Here's the second question you ought to ask. How big of a blessing do you want? And you might be saying this morning, well, I want, I want blessings from, from on high. I would love for God to really, really just reach down and send a big old blessing my way. Well, you have full control of that. Verse number 6 says it like this. But I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. He which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Now you might be sitting in your pew thinking, Brother Andrew, are you about to preach a prosperity gospel? No, I'm, I'm about to preach the exact same thing that the Apostle Paul preached. If you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you reap bountifully. And you may be sitting there this morning thinking, well, I don't really need that much right now. So here's my encouragement to you. Don't give that much. But if you find yourself in need of a blessing, and I'm not selling hankies or holy water this morning. I'm telling you that God's word says, if you need something from him, if you want to reap bountifully, you must sow bountifully. It's really not that different in nature. I was struggling a little bit last night. I was up, uh, I think, about 1.30 in the morning, uh, still suffering a little bit from jet lag. And so I was studying my sermon, and, and I was trying to do a math problem, and I just couldn't get it done. So I texted the smartest guy that I know, John Scahill. He, he's a math teacher, and I needed help with a math problem. You see, what I wanted to do was I wanted to take a cob of corn. And what I found out is on each cob of corn, there's about 800 kernels of corn. Now, if you were to extrapolate that, I think uh, the research I did, it says that there's about 1,300 kernels in a pound. So this is where it got a little above my pay grade. I sat there with a calculator and my laptop for a long time and I couldn't figure it out. So I text John the problem. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to put two farmers against each other. One farmer who goes out and buys a thousand pounds of corn, okay? He buys a thousand pounds of corn. And another farmer that does the same thing. 
The difference is one farmer sees the thousand pounds of corn and doesn't want to plant it. He says, boy, that's a lot of corn. I'm pretty good with that amount of corn. And so I think I'll just put that in the barn. Now, the other farmer, he does what farmers do. He plants the corn. And so I I wanted Brother John to kind of help me figure out what can the farmer who puts it in his barn expect and what can the farmer who puts it in the ground expect? So here's where it got even more difficult. I said, well, you can't put that many kernels in the ground and expect all of them to sprout. I know very little about farming, but I know even in farming, there's a little bit of loss that takes place. Not every seed germinates. You've got birds to deal with and you've got insects that eat the corn. So I said, Brother John, here's what I need. I need a 60% return rate. I need a germination of only 60% of that thousand pounds of corn. And so he he was up at 1.30 last night. I said, what are you doing up at 1.30? I have an excuse. I procrastinated and didn't study. So what's your excuse? And he said, I'm watching YouTube. <laughs> okay. All right. What a blessing. But Brother John came through in the clutch. I'm telling you, he came through with a math problem. He started sending me formulas and equations and stuff I didn't even understand. But What Brother John calculated based upon the measurements that I discovered was this. The farmer who stores a thousand pounds of corn in his barn, guess what he gets back? A thousand pounds of corn. Now, I'm not good at math, but I was good enough for that one. You put it up in the barn, you don't plant it, you get what you got. But the farmer who puts his seed in the ground who only sees a 60% return on that corn, here's the math that Brother John came up with. So if it's bad, it's not my fault. It's all his fault. But he was sleep deprived and he was on YouTube. So uh, here's what he came up with. The man that plants his corn will harvest about 480,000 pounds of corn. That equals about 780,000 ears of corn. So he planted a thousand pounds and got back 480,000 pounds. You say, Brother Andrew, I'm not sure I buy into all this. You sow bountifully, you reap bountifully. The laws of nature prove it. The word of God proclaims it. You sow bountifully, you reap bountifully. You sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. So the two questions we ought to ask this morning, what's the perfect amount? Here's the questions. How much do you love Jesus? And how big of a blessing do you want? Because those will help determine what we should purpose in our heart. Number one, we should give a perfect amount. Number two, we should give with a pleasing attitude. Verse number seven. Every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, For God loveth a cheerful giver. Now, to be clear, God does not just love givers. He loves cheerful givers. The way that you offer to God means a great deal to God. Did you know there are times in in the Bible where God rejects offerings? Well, you don't even have to read but just a few chapters in the Bible and you see the first offering rejected. The first offering that was not given by Jesus was rejected by God. 
You remember Cain and Abel bring the offerings to him. God accepts the offering of Abel and he rejects that of Cain. Oh, there's a lot of reasons for it, but certainly the way that Cain offered it had something to do with it. You get a little further in the Bible, in Isaiah chapter 1, the, the children of Israel, they're coming to God, they're having the feast, they're uh, uh, partaking in the new moons and Sabbaths, and God says, Who hath required this of you to tread my courts? Who said that you had to do this? Well... The answer is obviously God told them. He appointed the new moons and the Sabbaths. But the problem was, God says, you're coming in the wrong manner. And the solemn assembly, God says in Isaiah chapter 1, is iniquity unto him. Oh, you can do church, but if you ain't doing church right, it don't please God. You can give an offering, but if you don't give it right, it does not please God. And the Bible clearly says that we ought not give this grudgingly or, or clenched fist or tight-hearted, that we would give it willingly, the Bible says, also that we would not give of necessity. Now, we're going to receive an offering next week. And whether you participate, well, that's up to you and God. Don't feel obligated to give because God says don't give because you're committed to. Don't give because you feel obligated to. Don't give grudgingly or of necessity. David gives offerings to the construction of the temple. And guess what? The Bible says that the people follow suit and they give willingly unto the Lord. At the rebuilding of the temple in Ezra chapter 1, the Bible says everyone that came offered willingly unto the Lord. And that is how God wants us to give willingly and cheerfully. The word for cheerful literally means hilarious. It's the same Greek word that we get our word hilarious from. It kind of paints the picture that as the offering plate passes in front of you and you place that offering in there, you would be saying, (laughs) don't do that. We just look a little crazy next week. So just don't do that. But the idea is that we would be so excited, that we would be so invested in the work of God, and that we would be able to offer unto God something that we have been given from Him, that we would say, God, all of it's yours anyway, and I'm just so thankful that I get to honor you with this little bit. Woo! What a good day to be in God's house. And that's kind of the idea, that we would give willingly and hilariously. Years ago, many of you know I spent a little time hunting, and my dad and I went on a trip to New Mexico. We were going to go hunting for uh, some mule deer out there, and I took a bow. It was the first time I'd ever taken a bow and arrow into the woods, and I had gone and I had purchased with my own money, my very, I guess it was my second bow, but it's kind of like my first adult bow, and it was a Fred Bear Team Realtree RX-32, and if that means nothing to you, that's quite all right. It meant very little to me. All I know is it looked really cool. It was camo and had gold on it, so I was really excited. And I was going to go hunt archery for the very first time. I get out there, and I'm stalking around, and I finally get within bow range of a deer, and I shoot a deer, and boy, it got real dark, and so we went back to the house, and we're like, where'd you hit it? Did Did you hit it good? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I hit it good. I'm so excited. I can't wait to go find it. Well, we go back and we're going to go find this deer. 
And instead of finding the deer, and instead of finding blood, here's what we found. An arrow laying on the ground that literally had bounced off of the deer. I paid $532 for that bow and arrow, and the arrow bounced off of the deer. Well, later on, my dad got very, very ill. We had to come home, and we drove all, uh, all the way back from New Mexico. It was uh, uh, Saturday when we arrived back home. I no more got into our driveway. I went and got into my Dodge pickup and drove to the nearest bow shop. And I said, I want you to hand me your three best bows. I test shot them all. And I bought my very first Matthews bow that day. And I was excited about it. You know why? Because I was excited to go deer hunt with a bow that might actually do something. I was excited. I couldn't wait. I got home from a 10-hour drive and hopped right back in my car to drive another hour to get that bow. I was so excited. The idea that we would give to God and be anything less than excited is ridiculous. The fact that God gives us of His grace and of His bounty, He gives us just a little bit and we're able to give it back to Him. And that somehow filthy mammon, uh, uh, the, the money that we use in this earth might somehow bring pleasure to our God. What a wonderful thought. And yet God loveth a cheerful giver. The first thing we must do if we're going to be a cheerful giver is that we'd give the perfect amount. Secondly, that we would give with a pleasing attitude. And then finally this morning, that we would give with a peace in God's ability. Look in verse number 8. The Bible says, As we give, and we give not grudgingly nor of necessity, but we would give cheerfully, for God loveth the cheerful giver. Verse number 8 says, And God is able. Do you believe that? I mean, that's not the end of the verse, but you can kind of pause right there and say, Amen. God is able. Well, what's He able to do? Well, He's able to make all all grace abound towards you. Grace has been defined by uh, God's riches at Christ's expense. The fact that God would ever show us any sort of favor is beyond me. But He showers us in grace. And the Bible's teaching that if we will Uh, be a cheerful giver, God is able to make all His grace abound unto us. And these graces might appear different for each and every person. Maybe you need physical blessing right now. Maybe you need the tires to last a little longer on your car. Or when you go to start up your car, that it might start right up. I believe that God is able to do that. He made the shoes on the children of Israel's feet last 40 years. I can't even make a pair of loafers last four years. And he made their shoes last 40. Uh, I believe God is able to give grace in that way. I also believe God is able to give grace spiritually. I think that he's able to help you grow. He's able to stretch your faith. He's able to teach you how to rely on him. He's able to teach you, and what I believe the passage is primarily teaching, how to be content. Now, nobody wants that. Nobody prays that we would be content, but I think that's what the passage is teaching. For the Bible goes on to say 
that ye always having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. Hey, one of the greatest things that God can do for you is teach you that as long as you have God, you have all you need. The Bible teaches us to be content with what such things as we have. For He hath promised He will never leave us nor forsake us. If you have Jesus on your side, what else do you need? If God be for us, who can be against us? You have God on your side. So as we give an offering cheerfully unto Him, we ought to know that God is able to make all grace abound unto us. There's a verse in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. You know it. I'll quote it for you, but I want something stuck out to me, and I couldn't get this out of my head. The Bible says, Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in my house. Prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing, that there shall not be room enough to receive. So God says, You bring your tithe into my house. You bring the offering to me that I have, I have laid on your heart. You bring it to me and I will pour out a blessing through the windows of heaven that be so big you can't even receive it. Now we, we understand that, but something I've always wondered is this. And forgive me, I, I'm weird and I know it, but this is the way I read the Bible and I think about it. Well, how big are the windows? How big are the windows? I mean, if there are windows of heaven, it would make a lot of sense that they'd be big, but how big are the windows? I dug a little deeper into this thought, and it goes far deeper than I have time to explain to you this morning. But in John, there's a a passage that speaks of the pool of Bethesda. It's It's a passage where there's an impotent man that's laying there, and he's been laying there for 30 plus years, and the Bible teaches that an angel would come down and trouble the waters, and the first person in there would be healed of whatever infirmity they have. And so this man waited at that pool all the time, and they're trying to get down to the pool so that he could be healed and relieved from his impotency. Now, the Bible teaches that he was frustrated and struggling because he had nobody to help him get into that pool. And Jesus said, hey, uh, what's going on? And he explained to Jesus how he was so frustrated that he never had any help. And every time the angel would come, somebody else would get to the pool before him. Well, in the late 19th century, this pool of Bethesda was found. The Bethesda is actually a Hebrew word. It means house of mercy or house of grace. Uh, It's interesting that as uh, these uh, excavators kind of dug out and found this pool, uh, it's really two pools, a northern pool and a southern pool. You see, Jerusalem, it only rains about half the year, and so water supply is very needed. And so what this pool served as was a source of water. It not only had healing powers, but it also had the ability to give people drink. And so this northern pool was the larger of the two pools, separated by a wall, or as we might call it, a dam. And then the southern pool filled up when the dam in between was opened. The Hebrew word for windows is the same word that they use to describe the doors of the dam. Can you imagine a pool completely full of water and when the doors are opened or literally, literally it means floodgates. 
when the floodgates open, water comes rushing out from the northern pool into the southern pool to fill what vacancy there is? Can you imagine that? So as the Bible says, I will open up the windows of heaven. It truly means God will open up the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing so big you can't even receive it. It paints the picture that there's a wall in between heaven and earth. That God is in heaven full of blessing, full of supply, full of mercy, full of grace, full of everything that you need. But my God shall supply all your need according unto his riches and glory. But God is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that you can ask or think. And the picture that is painted is there's a, a, a dam or a wall separating heaven from earth. And God says, all you got to do is bring me what I ask. Bring ye the tithes into the storehouse. Be a cheerful giver. And the Bible says the floodgates will open. And there'll be a blessing so big you're not even able to receive it. This morning, I don't know what blessing you need. Maybe you have children that aren't behaving. Maybe they're doing things that, that you would not encourage them to do. Maybe you need your car to last a little bit longer. Maybe you need resolution at the workplace. I have no clue what your problem is, but I can tell you this. God does. And God is pleased when his people give cheerfully. I can't promise resolution, but God says, He that soweth bountifully shall also reap bountifully.